RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the Eagle Moss Shop, home of official Star Trek collectibles, including rare and highly prized Starship models from all Star Trek TV series and related productions. Use the promo code MissionLog for 10% off your order at shop.eaglemoss.com slash USA slash Mission Log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 312. The Search, Part 1, and The Search, Part 2. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Mission Log is a show on a mission to examine every episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for ideas and ideals, and seeing whether it stands the test of time. This week, The Search, Part 1, and The Search, Part 2, Always Be Searching. Actually, it's just The Search, Part 2, though Always Be Searching, uh, The Search Continues, and the obligatory... Electric Boogaloo, The Search, Part 2, Electric Boogaloo, any of those would have been acceptable titles. Uh, oh, wait, wait, I, I, I want to play, uh, let's see here, The Search 2, Cruise Control, mm. uh, uh, To Search 2, Furious, <laughs> uh, The Search 2, The Squeakwell, or uh, just uh, Teen Wolf 2. Oh, <laughs> Could I, yeah, I just just got to put in a vote for that. Those are all acceptable. Actually, I like those. In fact, yours are better than mine. I quit. <laughs> hey, John's got trivia coming up in a moment, but first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Uh, I've got one more that I just thought of in the middle of all that. Okay. Um, the search part two, the search for the search. It's a little, Whoa. it's a little, you know, Star Trek uh, movie kind of, but not mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, um, you've got trivia. Yes, you do. You've got trivia <laughs> that you do. Yeah. Well, here we go. I'm going to do the trivia for The Search, Parts 1 and Part 2. The story credit is easy enough. Both parts are credited to Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf, of course, veteran DS9 writers. The script on Part 1 is credited to Ronald D. Moore, and Part 2 was scripted by Ira. Now, part 1 was directed by Kim Friedman, and we've talked about her before briefly. She wrapped up Season 2 of DS9 directing The Wire and The Jim Hadar. Funny thing, uh, she is currently working in real estate and has the Instagram account at Helicopter Mom Homes, but even better, her daughter runs the Instagram account at Crazy Jewish Mom, in which she reposts the funny and weird messages she gets from her mom. So if you want to look inside Kim Friedman's life, well, there you go. Uh, we will see more of Kim's work on DS9 and then in Voyager. And by the way, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Kim directed no fewer than eight episodes of The Love Boat and even came back to shoot two more of the sequel show, The Next Wave. For part two, the return of another veteran Star Trek director, Jonathan Frakes. The last Trek directing gig he had was on TNG's Sub Rosa in January of 94, and this is the first of his DS9 credits, which premiered in October of that same year. Of course, Frakes goes on to direct much more Trek, and we will catch up with him again later. Hey, Ken, and everybody, it looks like we got a new ship. Yes, the Defiant is introduced with this episode served a number of plot concerns, primarily how do we have some sort of compelling, believable defense for a relatively defenseless station. Originally named the Valiant by Ronald D. Moore, they decided to go with a D name rather than a V name since Voyager was waiting in the wings. Jim Martin did a number of concept designs. You can see some of those that we posted on our video interview with Jim. And yes, the Defiant name is an homage to that ship trapped in interphasic space in the TOS episode, The Tholian Web. 
Some other changes too, uh, new com badges all around, uh, some new hairstyles, uh, refreshed makeup and wardrobe update for Odo. So, uh, you know, take a good visual look at this one. And now let's talk about guest stars. Ken Marshall plays Lieutenant Commander Eddington. And Ken is a guy who is very well known to genre and cult movie fans of the 80s because he was the star of Krull. John Fleck plays Ornithara, the Karma. We met John before when he guest starred in the TNG episode The Mind's Eye, and this is actually his second DS9 appearance after a bit part uncredited as a Cardassian. We'll see a lot more of him, though. Uh, one more time on DS9 in a different role, then in a recurring gig across the four seasons of Enterprise. Other credits include Waterworld, True Blood, and a recurring stint on Carnival, among so many more. We also have Martha Hackett as the Romulan Terule. Now, this might be her first Trek appearance, but definitely remember her name. She comes back as a voice for Trek video games, but most notably has a long recurring role in Voyager in just a few years. The female shapeshifter is played by Salome Jens. She has loads of credits in TV and film, everything from Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, to the Green Lantern, and we will see her back on DS9 for more appearances in this character. Interesting to note, though, that she appeared on TNG in the episode The Chase as one of the humanoid progenitors more than a year before this episode came out. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Finally, Boroth is played by Dennis Christopher, an actor with a long and varied career. He has just one more Trek appearance in Enterprise, but he was in the 1990 miniseries version of Stephen King's It. He also appears in Deadwood, Stingray, Django Unchained, and starred in the 1979 movie Breaking Away. Meet the Defiant and Commander Sisko's flair for the dramatic. Prologue. Remember that time when the USS Odyssey blowed up real good and then Cisco told everyone that if the Dominion showed up at DS9, they need to be ready for them? Well, the crew have been working overtime on strategic simulations, none of which are sounding very good. Then out of nowhere, a cloaked ship reveals itself, an experimental Federation design flown in by Commander Cisco. Act 1. Sweet New Ride. It's the Defiant, developed by Starfleet for super dangerous missions like fighting the Borg. It's also a flawed prototype, so good luck, everybody. The DS9 crew will give it a shakedown, seek out the Dominion, and try to negotiate, or show force, whichever it comes to. On board, we welcome a Romulan, sub-commander to rule, to work the cloaking device, and Lieutenant Commander Eddington, who is there to run security which means Odo presumably is out of a job, at least on this Starfleet mission, until Kira catches up with him on the promenade later, saying he has to go with them. The Bajoran government wants him there. Okay, it's Kira, and she wants him there. He'll think about it. Act 2. You know who else we need if we're putting the band back together? Quark. So Sisko convinces Quark to come along, using the Grand Nagus as leverage, to communicate with the Karama as their entry point to the Founders. Almost time for departure. The crew are getting each station ready to go. Just one last person to board. It's Odo. He thought about it. And with that, the Defiant pulls ahead toward the wormhole, then onto the Karama system. Odo is shown to his quarters, which he'll be sharing with Quark, it's the odd couple all over again, Quark with his abrasive, smarmy personality, Odo with his sleeping in a bucket. Before long, the Defiant picks up a couple of Jem'Hadar ships, which seem to have picked up their cloak. Maybe. Tarul suggests they come to a dead stop, and hey, a few tense moments later, it looks like the Defiant has gone undetected. Act 3. From Karama, Quark's contact Ornithar comes on board and needs a little arm-bending to get any info about the Founders. Ornithar actually knows very little, except that their contact is with the Vorta, and all he knows about the Vorta is that they point their communications toward a remote listening station. When he pulls up a map, Odo is intrigued, entranced really, by something called the Amarian Nebula. Quark stays behind with Ornithar, saying he'll get himself back to DS9, while the Defiant heads off to that communications relay. Odo, meanwhile, 
stares transfixed at that nebula. When they finally arrived at the Kalanon system to find that communication center, Dax and O'Brien are sent down to investigate. They do get in, they do find some useful information like where those communications are relayed, but they also find that the place is occupied. A shield goes up, a hand grabs Dax, and now three Jem'Hadar fighters are on their way. Sisko has a tough choice. Stay and fight a losing battle, or leave his crew stranded, while they flee to safety and presumably to find the founders. Under cloak, the Defiant warps away, leaving Dax and O'Brien at the mercy of their captors. Act 4. Odo, who has been more cantankerous than usual, refuses an order from Sisko to come to the bridge. When Kira goes to see what's gotten stuck in his craw, she finds him still obsessed with the Omaria Nebula. He's ready to just ditch this whole thing as long as he can go there. He doesn't know why, he just knows he has to go there. He's being pulled there for some reason that he can't understand. Well, too bad. There are more Jem'Hadar ships circling awfully close to where the Defiant is parked, and the jig is up. They've figured out how to spot the cloaked ship. They open fire. Act 5. The Defiant is taking a real beating. Panels are exploding, things are on fire, rocks are falling from the ceiling, so you know it's bad. When a bunch of Jem'Hadar soldiers beam on board the Defiant, the day is lost. Even after a lot of fighting back, the Jem'Hadar have the advantage— what became of Sisko Bashir to rule? We don't know. We do know that in the melee, Odo was able to escape to a shuttle and carried an unconscious Kira with him. He, of course, is piloting them to the Omarian Nebula, not back through the wormhole. In the Nebula, he spotted a Class M rogue planet, and they land to take a look. Pretty quiet here, except for the giant lake of shimmering, shining goo, which comes to life... And from it emerged life forms of three humanoids, an awful lot like Odo. One of them, a woman, addresses Odo and says, Welcome home. Part 2. Prologue. Yes, this place is full of Odos, or Odo-like beings. The woman explains that Odo was newly formed when he left, so he's got a lot to learn. They all exist as part of the Great Link, which is what melds their thoughts and sensations. She even takes his hand for a moment, and they kind of melt into each other. The experience is profound. Odo is emotional. He is home. Act 1. Home is a big change for Odo. The woman who greeted him explains that they're pretty isolated and wish to remain that way. While he's here, Odo can learn more about the ways of the Great Link, first by assuming different shapes. She tells Odo that his time among the solids has messed with his head. But it's okay. That can be undone. In the aftermath of the battle with the Jim Hadar, the remaining crew of the Defiant got split up. Dax and O'Brien have been captured and released, Sisko and Bashir in a shuttle. They all head back to DS9 to find Admiral Necheyev and a delegation of Federation representatives who are there to sign a peace treaty with the Dominion. Lucky for them, Dax and O'Brien got to talk to the founders, express their intention for peace, and, well, ah, that's about it. So, cool. And one of the founders wants to meet with Sisko now. Meet Borath. He's a founder, and he's one of the Vorta. Sisko hadn't put that together until now, but here he is, Borath makes their intentions for peace pretty clear. It's all sunshine and rainbows, because they're looking forward to an alliance with the Federation. I mean, you certainly wouldn't want to have the Dominion as an enemy, right? Act 2. If the meeting with Borath left Sisko with a strange feeling, he's not alone. Garrick bends Bashir's ear to say that the Cardassian Central Command is all too eager to sign a treaty with the Dominion, which should make him suspicious. On top of that, Tarul has been told that the Romulans aren't allowed to participate in the negotiations at all. This affront leads her to predict a war if they are left out entirely. That's just what worries Sisko, and he confronts Admiral Necheyev about the exclusion. She just says that the combined force of a Federation and Dominion alliance would make the Romulans less of a threat, so there's nothing more to discuss— which leaves Sisko even less easy than he was before. Back on Odo's homeworld, both Odo and Kira are a little frustrated. 
Kira because she can't get a signal out to find Cisco since there's some power source deep in the planet blocking any transmissions from happening. Odo is worked up because he's not quite finding the awakening to the Great Link and his place among his people the way he thinks he should. Sure, he's been turning himself into different objects, but it just seems like an empty exercise to him. The female changeling tries to explain some stuff to Odo. Their people keep themselves isolated because a history of traveling to meet other species only resulted in them being persecuted, even killed. Odo is one of a hundred who were sent away to see what it's like elsewhere, but genetically programmed with a desire to return home. She assures him it will all be better, and they meld again into each other's bodies. Act 3 Kira sets about trying to find the source of interference that's blocking her from reaching Sisko or anybody else. She finds the door to a room that's impenetrable by her scanner, which raises a really good question. What do shapeshifters need with a door? Quark is in good spirits. With the impending peace treaty, he's expecting a huge uptick in business. He might have to wait, though. Jim Hadar comes into the bar and immediately bullies Chief O'Brien, putting a serious damper on the evening. Bashir is indignant when security does nothing. But Lieutenant Commander Eddington says they have orders to give the Jim Hadar a wide berth while the peace talks are going on. Sisko's dinner with Jake is interrupted by Dax, who is not too happy with the surprise order that she's being transferred to the Lexington, and this puts Sisko over the edge. He angrily confronts Necheyev and Boroth about what's going on. His chief is bullied and in the infirmary. His science officer reassigned, not to mention his unease with quickly entering into a treaty and risking war with the Romulans. Necheyev makes it worse. She and Boroth have agreed that Bajor will now be under Dominion control, meaning Sisko and everyone else is out of there. His objections fall on deaf ears, though. The treaty has already been signed. Act 4. Odo has really taken to life on his homeworld now. He's going to stay for a while, and he tells Kira he's learning so much. Good for him. Before Kira and he part ways, though, she needs his help with one last thing. That door that's blocking whatever power source, well, she can't get through it. And isn't it weird that shapeshifters would need a door anyway? Garrick says goodbye to Sisko with a bit of commiseration. The Romulans have signed a pact with the Bajorans to oppose the Dominion. It'll be a mess, and Sisko's mission of peace is seemingly at an end. Pity that their respective leaders have gone insane. Yes, a pity, Sisko replies, and the two realize that they're on the same page. Just then, Teruel comes running down the promenade, chased by the Jem'Hadar who fire, killing her in the process. Sisko fights back, but is taken into custody. Time then for a good old-fashioned jailbreak in which Garrick will anesthetize Eddington, hide him, and then allow for Sisko, Dax, Bashir, O'Brien, and Garrick himself to escape to a runabout. Act 5. The escape plan doesn't go entirely as planned. Garrick sneaks the others past Jim Hadar guards, but is killed in the process. More firefighting until the crew get to the Rio Grande and launch themselves toward the wormhole. Necheyev and Borov contact the ship to warn Sisko that the Jem'Hadar will be sent after them, to which Sisko says fine, but it'll take reinforcements 70 years to get there, and then they launch photon torpedoes to collapse the wormhole. Meanwhile, way on the other side of the wormhole, Odo has inspected that door Kira found. It's really more intended to keep whatever is on the other side in, as opposed to keeping others out. He wrangles with the lock, revealing a couple of Jem'Hadar. Ugh, these guys again. And they are led into a room containing... Huh? Sisko, Dax, O'Brien, Bashir, Teruel, all on examination slabs, unconscious, hooked up to some kind of machinery. And there's Weasley Borath at the controls, explaining that this little experiment was designed to see exactly how much resistance the Dominion would face if they pushed into the Alpha Quadrant. More than expected, but the next steps aren't Borath's call. What to do next is up to the Founders. What's that? Borath and the other Vorta aren't Founders? Nope. It's the female changeling who greeted Odo that explains... 
Their race were once hunted, but now they control everything in the Dominion, imposing order on a chaotic universe. They see solids as a threat, justifying any control then that the founders choose. Odo says this isn't justice at all, and he's chosen to stay with his friends, regardless of the appeal of the Great Link. Since no shapeshifter has ever fought another, Odo is allowed to leave with his friends, with the warning that the next time will not be so easy. Before he goes, Odo has a few last words with the changeling who greeted him. She says he'll eventually want to come back. He says no. Then she says that she may find her way to the Alpha Quadrant, that it could use some order that only the Founders can offer. Again, he says no. And she says she will wait until the time is right, and leaves him by saying that they will miss him, but he will miss them more. The End Man, two-part recaps are tough. They are tough, and I, I tell you, it's my, my promise to you and myself and all the other listeners. I want to get it down to, there was another show, uh, beginning the track, they did their recaps in ten sentences. Ten sentences? Yeah. Wow. They're leaving, they're leaving out a bit of nuance, that I think, aren't they? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, not to knock but, anybody else, but yeah, no, somewhere no. between ten sentences and twenty minutes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll find the right. Uh, it's two yeah. episodes though, so well done. I mean, there was a lot to cover mm -hmm. there. I will tell you honestly, I was I was glad this was not one for me to write. Mm -hmm. Although I did think if I were writing this one, everything that happened to uh, Cisco and everybody else, yeah, would not have been in the second recap. Would not have been in part two because none of it actually happened. Oh, oh yeah, well, I think it probably yeah, would have been like yeah. stuff happened. Stuff happened. We'll talk more about them later, because really the only action, right, was uh, for, I mean, the only real action were for Kira and uh, and Odo. Yeah. And everything yeah, else Odo. was just like, mm -hmm. you know, happy fun time. That'd be like, mm -hmm. you know, if we covered everything um, uh, uh, Barclay did in the in the holodeck. Right. right. Well, yeah, but here's the thing. It, it does reveal at least the founder's intent. And oh, sure. And the, you know, what they're after. But yeah, but, but you're right. Part two really is it's the Odo story. Yeah. And um, yeah, I I, uh, I, I kind of like that, but I don't want to jump ahead. I don't want to get ahead too, no, too no, far. No. Yeah. I, I do want to say, man, big thanks to the writers of Deep Space Nine, hmm. because Kira says in uh, part one, she says they can set up booby traps in the station <laughs> if the Jim Hadar show up. And it is so nice to get a mission log reference snuck into an episode of Deep Space Nine. That is pretty cool. That's, you know, it's the kind of thing you, you always hope and wish will happen. Mm -hmm. 20 years before it could possibly happen. Yeah. Hashtag booby trap. Hashtag yeah. booby trap. Um, <laughs> so uh, Rom only has a son to think of. I have a business. <laughs> I love that line. Well done, Quark. I love That's that. Great. He's actually, yeah. Yeah, I, I hope that we are past the part where Quark almost has everyone killed because yeah, he yeah. is emerging as one of my favorite characters mm -hmm. to the point that I was thinking, I, I think he might be my favorite character. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that time he nearly got the whole place blowed up. Right. Remember right, that time exactly. he nearly got, you know, all of our other heroes killed. Mm -hmm. But uh, but yeah, he's uh, he was fun in this episode. Yeah, that was a good bit. Hey, uh, even before we did this episode, somebody posted a comment. Because I, I mentioned that there are some visual changes in the episode. Mm -hmm. And somebody on Twitter posted, I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the volume of Jadzia's hair. <laughs> that was, <laughs> which was great. But here's the thing. It's been a couple of months. It's been a couple of months since uh, the Jem'Hadar when uh, uh, Cisco had that traumatic speech. You know, if they come here, I want to be ready for them. And then there was that just sort of like, awkward end yeah it's the, it's the only is the kind of thing you can only do in a tv show because you have the luxury of cutting and going to credits or going to commercial whereas otherwise in real life if, if the cameras just kept going it'd be like uh, we're going to be ready for them um we're gonna need a montage then yeah yeah all right start getting ready apparently <laughs> right so you're saying and, though that that speech was so amazing that it just blew jadzia's hair back Totally. Okay. Totally. I, that's I, what that, happened. Maybe that's yeah. what it is. Because I was trying to think back mid nineties. Was that a thing we were doing with our hair? My, my, well, if you're a <laughs> three hundred something year old trill, I guess maybe. maybe. I guess so. Maybe. It's weird, right? It's sort of surprising she doesn't just dye it pink. I mean, yeah, yeah three hundred right? years old at that point. And granted, of course, Jadzia is only twenty nine. Dax is yeah. three hundred. But but Dax is ready to cut loose. He's like, oh, today so. I'm going to look like a Nagel painting. Yeah. And tomorrow I'm going to have pink hair. And yeah. yeah, I think making a mohawk. 
says Dax. Yeah. And Jed Z is <laughs> right. like, you're not getting a mohawk. And Dax's like, I think we're getting a mohawk. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yes, yeah, Cisco comes back with the Defiant, and mm-hmm. uh, Starfleet's like, here, this ship is awesome. It's a prototype. Nothing works, but you'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> like, like our guys didn't figure it out, but you'll you'll be fine. Yeah. And in, in keeping with uh, in keeping with uh, Deep Space Nine and everybody mm-hmm. on it hating it, everybody aboard the Defiant hates it. I, I, I think Cisco hates it less. Cisco hates it less, right? Because he gets yeah. to sit in the captain's, you know, ship or, or seat, excuse me, a captain's seat and gets to like, you know, go out and do stuff. Yeah. But yeah, everybody else was really complaining a lot. They have a, a great conference room, though. They do, they do have a good they, conference room. Talk about, about that. It's actually kind of funny. If you want to think about the Defiant for just a second. So we had peaceful ships, right? We had science ships, we had medical ships, we had, mm-hmm. you know, giant Hiltons in space. Mm-hmm. And then the Borg attack and they're like, we need a warship. And so they build a ship that literally almost tears itself apart. It's like, okay, <laughs> right. we need all of the guns and all of the engine. It's like yeah. all of it in one ship. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. It's, maybe they, maybe they could have turned to somebody else. I don't know. I can't remember which ship it was. Maybe, uh, somebody will write in and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I want to say the Mary Rose, but I, that's probably wrong. Uh, but we're talking about a, a warship that was built, you know, three, 400 years ago, totally loaded up with cannons from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. It sails out into the harbor. Oh, it, you know, like 30 feet and just falls right over and goes straight to the bottom. <laughs> Um, this, this was a thing that happened. Yeah. yeah people probably died mm-hmm. and I'm laughing my head off, but I mean, that seriously sounds like something from a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Yeah. Oh, oh, but here, but, but even back then they sent divers out to recover all the cannons because there were all these super expensive weapons on board sure. uh, that were brand new from the factory. Right. So, uh, why let a little water get in the way? Just go get them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah don't mind the bodies. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, I... Yeah. So, uh, Cisco says early on, you, you know, he thought that one day he'd just be behind a desk at headquarters making big decisions. Really? Is that, I mean, I, it just seems like every time a captain has been faced with that, uh, that they immediately realize that they hate that job. He's not a captain. Well, I, it, no, but he's I, the guy no, but I mean, in charge. He yeah. was fairly, he's fairly low rung though. I mean, they, they did say before. Right. Because mm-hmm. now he's been on DS9 for a while. I, I, one assumes, I mean, that's so weird, though, because his track has been strange. It was three years before he came to Deep Space Nine that Jennifer died at the Battle of Wolf 359, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So pretty much he lost all will at that yeah. point is, is the impression that we're given. So it's been, at this point, it's been like five years since he really considered his, you know, career path. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. Does he still mm-hmm. want to be? What's honestly stranger is when he was talking to, uh, you know, the the holodeck Necheyev or the, you know, Im- implant Necheyev or whatever. She's like, hey, you can finally make Admiral like you always wanted to. You would think they would actually know that he doesn't want that anymore because they're, you know, working off his brain, which about 20 minutes ago said, yeah, I used to think I wanted that, but not so much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You would think that. Uh, I think this is something you and I would do. I'm a little surprised mm-hmm. that Cisco would do this. Uh, we're going on a dangerous mission. Better bring the bartender. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. I mean, it, it, they, they get him and you have to justify it, of course, for the reason the spread. I, I'm surprised they didn't just throw uh, Jake and Nog in there, too, just because, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, like somebody goes to yeah. open the overhead bin. To put something yeah, in. Yeah, oh, and Jake a, and Nog oh, come tumbling out. Although, Sirach was already fairly big at that point. That would have been a very difficult thing to pull yeah, off. Right. Exactly. Um, there's a little production thing that I want to point out. So, it, it was a change of style uh, when Dax and O'Brien are at that communications station on Kalanon 7. And there's a POV shaky cam that's very close to them. Before the hand pops out and grabs Dax, mm-hmm. it's a little clunky. Like, like this is a thing that you do a lot in TV and film, where you have that shaky cam kind of POV thing to let you know that there's somebody in the room watching them. Right. But it's walking around a lot, yeah, and very close to them for a long time before the hand actually comes out. Totally strange. They wouldn't have seen him too because he had that camera. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> we think it'd be making noise. Might have a tally light on it. it so might, yeah, it might, it might indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. At, at the end of part one, when the Jem'Hadar open fire on the Defiant, uh, the Helm officer is killed. Who the hell was that guy? Like, there's barely anyone on board the Defiant except for uh, Odo in a bucket and the bartender. And then some guy that we've never seen is just there. And then he's dead in two seconds. Yeah. And what I found most interesting about him actually is uh, so he dies. Well, I guess because Julian goes over and says, and, and literally about this much time, he's gone. I'll take the helm. <laughs> Which I kind of wanted yeah. him to follow that with like wee or something because he really seemed like that was what he was waiting for. And yeah, man. I was thinking maybe it would have been great if he had like, you know, tried doctoring for like, a, you yeah. know, for more than a second. I understand it's a battle. I understand there's a lot going on. But, you know, the guy might have pulled through <laughs> if Julian had yeah. been grabbing the wheel. Yeah, would he have taken a little longer if it was, say, Jadzia? Otherwise, he's just like, nope, I got, I'm really good at dead or not dead. I'm a doctor. <laughs> dead. <laughs> That's just, yeah. I'm driving. Yeah. Uh, let's see. At the end of part one, Odo smiles when he first experiences being home. He gets a little choked up, but there's a smile. And when there's a smile, you know something is up. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is dangerous. Hey, and speaking of those founders, now are they trying to look like Odo, or are they also trying to look like a Bajoran doctor? <laughs> That's a great question. That's a wonderful. Yeah. I wish. Yeah, I, I was actually puzzling over their um, uniforms. They weren't uniforms. Mm-hmm. Unitards, yeah, maybe, or leotards. Right. I don't know what they. Well, she was wearing a dress. Actually. Yeah, there were there were outfits of differing designs. Yeah, yeah. When she came out of that, uh, when she came out of the big pool there, mm-hmm. uh, which I I thought was kind of funny because she was like, "Yeah, we're part of the Great Lake," and I wanted him uh-huh. to be like, "I'm sorry, did you say part of the Great Lake?" Because it looks <laughs> looks more like a pond. She's like, "No, no, Link. We're part of the Great <laughs> Lake," and it's like, "Ooh, oh, I mean, oh, I, I mean, uh, ooh." I don't, <laughs> can I right. can I not go home now? Please? Yes, yes. Exactly. And hey, uh, it wouldn't be Mission Log if we didn't mention the food moment. Uh, just got to give a big shout out to the uh, mashed potatoes and biscuits on the Cisco dinner table. Uh, made me hungry. I I missed that. Was it only mashed potatoes and biscuits? No, there, there was another bowl of something. Okay. And then on their plates, uh, it, it was a questionable protein. Questionable only because I couldn't tell. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw in my vote for like a nice, spicy, grilled, like a Cajun catfish. But that, that's just me. I, it could be something completely different. You know what these need, right? What's that? HD remaster. Oh, just, get on just, it, just people! So, just so you can see. get on it, yeah. please. Yes, yeah, the yeah. sequel to What We Left Behind. What yeah. we left on the table. <laughs> Cramped. Overpowered. Overgunned. Hello. Could we hear at least one word about the Defiance computer? We'll search for stuff to talk about in The Search, parts one and two in a moment. But first, I got to say, John, I'm a tiny bit jealous. Why Why are you a tiny bit jealous? Well, because uh, Cisco has a new ship. Oh, I want I a new see. ship. In I fact, see. I want a new ship. Well, I don't know, because here's the thing. We saw a lot more of the Jem'Hadar fighters uh, this episode, but they're they're really great ships. I mean, they really are. I, it's not every ship that can blow up the Enterprise. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Usually it takes the Enterprise to blow up the Enterprise. But, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the Jem'Hadar, of course, blew up the Odyssey, which looked a whole lot like that. So I kind of like that ship. Like when, when you because you get to see it flying around a lot, doing lots of yeah. really neat acrobatic stuff. You get to see it from all angles. Um, and then, of course, uh, Cisco has the Defiant. And, uh, and I, I, I think I would kind of like either one of those ships. Yeah, well, uh, fortunately, you can get one. You can has the starships. Nice. Yeah. Tell me how. Oh, please tell me how. Well, Ken, I know that you're a fan, and I know that we have people who listen who are also fans of the Eagle Moss official Star Trek starships. You can get the little ones. They're like four, five, six inches. Uh, You have the larger Discovery collection. And if you want the really big starships, you go for the XL editions. 
And for people like you who are looking to complete your collection or simply purchase single starships, uh, maybe for yourself or as a gift, but I know you, you're going to keep it, um, your ships, well, they have come in. Yeah. See, uh, the Eagle Moss shop is open and ready to do business. Uh, I actually checked it out earlier. They do have both of those ships that I was talking about. Nice. And, and here's the cool thing. Uh, listeners of Mission Log can enjoy an extra 10% off select models. What you do is you go to shop.eaglemoss.com slash USA slash Mission Log and then take a look at the variety of ships waiting there for you. Uh, yeah, a lot of them are actually shop exclusives, things you won't find anyplace else. Yeah, and that's what I like is looking for the kind of weird pieces that that aren't the aren't the front and center. Like I love my Enterprise, but I also love the fact that you have concept models there, like uh, Rick Sternbach's concept for the USS Voyager. You have the Phase Two Enterprise, which of course never got built, but there it is now in 3D for you to purchase. Uh, you have the Defiant. Funny that we're talking about the Defiant here. This is the TOS, the old school Defiant, and it glows in the dark. Yeah, so just look around, and you're sure to find not just one ship, many ships that you will want for your collection. Officially authorized by CBS Studios, each and every model is die-cast, it's hand-painted, and it comes with a display stand. What, what? Plus an in-depth magazine featuring exclusive artwork and highlighting the ship's history, its design, and its place in the Star Trek universe. To order... Go to shop.eaglemouse.com slash USA slash mission log and enter promo code mission log, all one word at checkout to receive an extra 10% off your order. That's promo code mission log at shop.eaglemouse.com slash USA slash mission log. And a big thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. You know what we do, John? What do we do? We communicate. Yeah, we do. You know what the uh, people on Deep Space Nine don't do? Uh, I'm saying there is a distinct <laughs> lack of communication. I'm a bit bothered by the lack of communication in this. <laughs> you know, both of these episodes, honestly. So Cisco doesn't want to tell DS9 that he's coming in cloaked. Big mistake. I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. Uh, the Grand Nagus doesn't want to talk to Quark about what he wants done, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Cisco doesn't tell Odo about the new security guy from Starfleet until he's standing right there in front of them. And uh, he doesn't tell anybody that there's a Romulan coming aboard either. And then Odo doesn't call ahead to say that he's joining the Defiant crew. Like, they're getting right. ready to, like, seal up the airlock and take off. And and, and, and uh, O'Brien's like, hey, there's somebody in the airlock. Yeah. Did Odo yeah. not know that he was coming to get on board the ship? Because he might have called ahead and said, by the way, can you hang on a minute? I just need to grab a couple of things. I'm coming with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. So there's only a couple of these that I think you could even remotely try to justify, but it's sort of that that old TV trope that we've pointed out so many times before on Star Trek, where two people are having a private conversation in a room and they mention something that that refers to or is contingent upon a third person who is definitely not in the room, (laughs) but then that person walks in and replies to that part of the conversation. Right. You know, that they could not have heard. Um, so these, yeah, definitely flying in hot on the Defiant. Uh, not a good idea. No. Just, you, you just don't do that. And then um, I think with the Grand Nagus thing with Quark, I, you know what? There's a part of me that sort of retconned this. It sort of came up with an alternate explanation where uh, Cisco is just messing with Quark. I, you know, I, this part of me wants to think like, oh, yeah, he went down the replicator. Yeah. Uh, he replicated one of those fancy uh, Nagus uh, walking sticks and said, oh, look, now now I've got Quark in a position. He will do anything for me. It's sort of like saying honor to a Klingon. You can get a Klingon to do anything. <laughs> now he can just get Quark to do anything and say, I got the Nagus stick. That's true. That's true. That's that is possible. That, <laughs> I, yeah, I did actually wonder. I was thinking about making one of those myself for the next time we go to a convention. Oh, yeah. Good idea. Yeah, I yeah. won't I won't dress up as a Ferengi because I, you know, that's mm-hmm. just sweaty. But yeah. but I yeah, could yeah. see making myself one of those uh, one of those uh, uh, staff of the Grand Nagus kind of thing. And they make everybody kiss it. You know, yeah, as right. you walk around, especially anybody dresses a, uh, a Klingon, especially anybody yeah. dresses a Ferengi, because that, yeah. uh, yeah. that that could certainly be fun. Yeah, 
And so, yeah, Cisco is a guy who says he likes to do things by the chain of command, likes to do things by the book, even if we don't always believe that. But, yeah, there's a lot of just sort of not announcing things that need to be announced. here. Yeah, here's the problem. And I know people are going to be like, well, come on, it's for the TV show. It's for the tension. You know, it's for the it's for the surprise. It's for the viewer. And, sure. and all of that's true, except everybody also keeps, you know, saying that, well, Deep Space Nine is the more realistic. Okay, well, then yeah. <laughs> there seriously have to be like, you know, things signed in triplicate before, <laughs> right. before anything happens. And this whole like, hey, surprise, we got a secret ship and sorry that to, to sneak up on you. Well, no, you're not really sorry to sneak up on you because you, you did it. Anyway, yeah. whatever. There's, there's plenty more to talk about, John. Cisco's got a big smile on his face, I don't want to say, when he comes up with the, uh, the Defiant. He's boy, he's happy about what he just did. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to decide how much of this to actually discuss, because we already hit the idea that uh, part two here is really Odo's story. Mm-hmm. And and I think that pretty much everything that we need to know about it is right there on the surface of this story. Um you know, there's the thing about his drive to get to the Omarian Nebula. And yeah, Odo doing his own thing for his own reasons. I don't think you can make the argument anymore. Well, that's not in character because that is purely Odo's character is doing things on his own for his own reasons and his own justification. But now we add the layer to it that that was something kind of genetically programmed for him to do that. So even if he's being, uh, to use a word, defiant uh, uh, about the orders, <laughs> it, it's, I know, right? Well yeah. played, yes. Nice. Uh, but but it's sort of like, you know, oh, uh, Data's circuitry is loose, so he's going to take over the ship this one time. And, the, you know, it's, right. it's, a, it's a thing like and that. And only this one time and all those other times. And all those other times, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I did think it was an interesting way to develop the backstory and history for the founders, uh, especially by having the Great Link, not the Great Lake, the Great Link, <laughs> as sort of, yeah, it's a physical thing, but it also informs kind of their belief system, their way of connection, their way of looking at the universe. Because then that sets up Odo as being like them, but being an outsider as well. Even when he has that profound experience of being joined with them, um, he has to make this decision about who truly are his friends and who truly has his best interests at heart. Uh, so this leaves us relatively early in the run of Deep Space Nine with this interesting question about Odo. Can he go home again? Um, is Odo who he is because of the type of being he is, or is he who he is because of all the experiences that have led him to where he is now, the life he's led, the friends that he's made, even the terrible things that he's gone through, uh, all leading up until now. I think this episode makes a pretty clear case that Odo is the sum of his experiences, um, even though he has this unique sort of outsider thing. He values the friendship. He values the family that he has created, at least now, over the family who uh, potentially could do reprehensible things <laughs> back in the Gamma Quadrant. Um Oh, and I, I really did. Uh, I like the little bit of philosophy that uh, she shares with Odo. To become a thing is to know a thing. Mm. It's the yeah, man. We reach. Yeah. We reach. We reach. We reach. Yeah, it's a good. Uh, good bit of philosophy there. Not bad. I mean, I mean, <laughs> the difference is. I mean, it's. It sort of makes a case for empathy, except it's not really empathy because he can actually literally physically become the thing, right? Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. it. I'm actually kind of em- envious of it. I mean, I'll, mm-hmm. I guess I'll have to settle for empathy and, and, and strive for empathy. It'd be great to be able to be a tree. <laughs> 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 or the tiny little yeah. bunny rabbit that I saw on a walk earlier today. Teeny tiny bunny rabbit that was so frightened oh. of me. And probably, you know, if I put myself in the head of that rabbit, I would just mm-hmm. notice it out of the corner of my eye and move on, right? But of yeah. course, you know, be big, dumb, lumbering me, afraid of nothing. <laughs> I like lean over the rabbit, and so of course it goes running. You know, like you know, for its dear life, it thinks. When really, all it's doing is like yeah. not letting me see. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. We reach. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great little thing. Now let's talk about the founders just a little bit because they, uh, and I'll come back to this, I'm sure, but they they act out of fear, mm-hmm. and and I wonder, you know, how much of that do we understand because of what they went through. 
But then how and when and where do you get to the point where you can talk them into a more reasonable position than being oppressors? You know, Earth history is absolutely littered with the the rise and fall of empires and rise and fall of regimes that started out as the oppressed. And then as soon as they got the opportunity and the taste for power became the oppressor. Mm hmm. You know, um, I, I have no answer to this at all, <laughs> but I'm, I'm throwing it out there because it's it's a reasonable background motivation for this species. Yeah. To then set up something that is the drama going forward on the show. You know, it, it's not right. And, and clearly the, the good guys, quote unquote, from uh, Starfleet and from DS9 uh, would not want things to go that way. And Odo, given a chance, would try to talk them out of that position. But this is a position now that's baked in for how many centuries and centuries after the horrors that they went through. Yeah, it's interesting that you say it's not right. I mean, because it's easy for us to say it's not right because it's not mm -hmm. right. Although I do think that there are people who would see that and go, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean and this is true of like everything from people who have actually been oppressed for centuries to people who, you know, for some reason think that they've been oppressed for the past 10 years. Yeah. I mean, there are any number of people who, who see themselves as ha as having been oppressed, whether they actually have been or not. And so, you know start start burying bullets man <laughs> you know <laughs> i mean it's i mean it's it's i i completely understand how the founders can get to the place that they are um mm -hmm. you would hope and when i say you i mean me i would hope that i would be the person who would like you know still be the person that i was the day before all of that started um, but it's easy for me to say that. I mean, well, no, it's not easy for me to say that that's who I would be because I don't know who I would be. I know my hope is that I would still be that person. That I'd be, you know, a less Attila the Hun, more Gandhi. But, you know, until it actually happens to you, I don't know that we know for certain. Yeah. Can we double back really quickly on Odo? Yeah. I think he should quit. I think he should quit his job. I think he should either yeah. quit working at Deep Space Nine or he should insist on getting what he needs to do his job, i.e., okay, I'll protect this place for Starfleet, just I don't want to be bound by Starfleet's rules. And if they say, yeah, that's fine, then he can go ahead and do his job. Or he should negotiate to change his duties. Maybe he should be like, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll play Quarks two nights a week. <laughs> I'll, I'll do magic tricks or I'll do, I'll, I'll do that chair trick that everybody likes so much. Right. I'll imitate yeah. whomever. But I mean, he really, he doesn't like his job. He really doesn't. And I think he should stop it. Also, I'm pretty sure that he should be fired um, because he left Cisco and the others. Right. Yeah. And then instead of going back to deep space nine, he goes on his own personal mission. He takes care of them, but he goes on his own personal mission I know it was all orchestrated by the founders, you know, but his decisions were still his own. And the ones that he made seem questionable to me. Yes. You joked about it earlier, but this is how many times do we say, all right, so really they have to relieve data of duty at this point, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Because how many times did data, you know, lock them out of the ship's computer, take the ship someplace else, you know, every now and then it was just like, wow, you know, we really didn't think this through having this, you know, android that can just take over everything and yeah, kill us right. all maybe right, we should right. maybe we should see about you know reassigning him i hear i hear there are potatoes that need peeling and he can do them yeah. faster <laughs> than those two idiots we got down there doing it right now <laughs> right. right yeah well okay so now odo doesn't really have another place to go though theoretically odo he has go the entire galaxy I, I say he, he could go anywhere do anything right but he, he's definitely a fish out of water wherever he goes yeah but i wonder structurally with uh with deep space nine Cisco is in command of the station and station operations. Um, is uh, is Odo getting his paycheck from Starfleet or because he's wearing the Bajoran uh, uh, symbol mm -hmm. on his outfit? So could the Bajorans just say, uh, "No, nah, we we really like this Odo guy. We're going to keep him there." I guess, except that I mean, I. I don't even know how it works, honestly. Yeah. It just seems yeah. to me he might be happier. And that's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about Odo's happiness, honestly. Sure. And this, I, yeah, yeah, reasonably. Yeah. yeah. So maybe he could, I don't know. Here's what I'm thinking. The singing Klingon who has that uh, that weird <laughs> sort of like Klingon, you know, eatery 
Mm-hmm. I love that guy. He yeah. might one night, you know, just be tired. Yeah. And Odo could be like, I got this. Yeah. And he turns into the singing Klingon mm-hmm. and then serves up food and, you know, a whole new partnership is formed. Never know the difference. Yep. Um, the Defiant has a cloaking device. The Defiant has a Romulan cloaking device with a Romulan there to run it. And a Romulan to run it. Do we have a Romulan on the show from now on, by the way? Because I know the Defiant sticks around. Well, Is Tarul going to be there? Or do they take the cloaking device away? Or is this now a thing that we're doing against um, against whatever treaty that was that we had? Right. Okay. So here's the problem. You know, we don't want to get too deeply ahead of ourselves. Right. Um, But it is worth pointing out that at this point in production, because we don't break the timeline ever on Mission Log. Ever. um, Ever. At this point in production, uh, Rick Berman was actually one who opposed it. He he actually did not like the idea of a ship having uh, a cloaking device, but uh, Ira and and, uh, Ronald Moore and uh, Robert Hewitt-Wolf, they tried to come up with some justifications to have it there. First and foremost, it being a Romulan thing, Mm -hmm. you know, so this is not a thing that Starfleet just has laying around and and they're going to uh, uh, just dole it out when they need to. Um, The other part of it, is that they uh, they originally had wanted to rule to be uh, a part of this, but um, look, spoiler, I'm I'm sorry, we're not going to have a lot of to rule. Yeah, I, I, yeah, sorry about that. But I mean, that would have been a very interesting thing. Um, but I, I'm afraid, uh, yeah, I'm afraid there's not a lot of to rule. So I mean, I I'm not kidding. meaning this is it. This is it for to rule. Okay, well, no, I understand done. that. I'm not kidding yeah. though when I say I don't know what happens. Does the Defiant have a cloaking device that it uses on the regular? Mm. Well, you're just going to have to wait and see. And well, no, I, wait and I see how the answer to the question. <laughs> Do you know? Well, you're going to have to wait and see how they justify it. Yes, it it will be used. See, I don't think there can be a justification for it, though, because Pike says in uh, Discovery, which I know is Mm -hmm. not really a thing yet, but doesn't Pike say Mm -hmm. to give up your uh, principles before going into battle is to lose the battle? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. As long as we're cool. As long as we're cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That was Pike, Ken. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, Pike, who Cornwell said was the best that the Federation and the Starfleet had to offer. I mean, we have we have a whole treaty about whether or not we're going to have a cloaking device. Mm-hmm. But desperate mm-hmm. times breed desperate measures, I believe, is what uh, is what uh, what's his name is what Cisco said. That's that's what he says. Yeah, yeah, and, which uh, I'm, I'm and pretty sure is not what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, all right. Well, we'll just you know we'll have to see how this plays out. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you want to talk about uh, Cisco and Jake thinking of Deep Space Nine as home? I would love to. Okay. How do you think that is? Because, I mean, at one point, Cisco says, uh, I wonder when that happened. When did I start thinking of this Cardassian monstrosity as home? (laughs) Does he like Deep Space Nine now, or is he just, like, used to Deep Space Nine now? Yeah, I I can't really get that he likes it, although apparently he likes the... Apparently, he likes the friendships that he's made. He likes the working arrangement for the most part that he's got there. It seems that he, um, it seems like he respects the job that he is supposed to do there. But does he, does he love it as a home? That's, it's a bit of a stretch, but maybe it is just proximity and, and familiarity at this point. Hmm. Jake loves the food, which is weird. Okay. That, that's strange. (laughs) I don't, I, I don't get that at all. Okay, because the whole thing is that replicators, like if you're on the Enterprise, replicators are everywhere. You know what they do? They what? replicate food. Okay, yes, and right. I would love that too. Like I, I, I've got three rooms here where I am. I, a replicator in every room, and every one of them makes food. That's great. But here's the problem: I, if I'm Jake, I'm not going to stop every ten feet and order pudding. Right. I love. I love the idea of you having a replicator in every room because you're like, yeah, well, whatever, I love that too. Whatever room you're in, and you get like yeah. halfway through your bowl of rice pudding or whatever, yes. yeah. and you're like, you go into the other room, you're like, oh, I left my bowl of rice pudding. Uh, computer, I replicate like a half-eaten bowl of rice pudding because I don't want to eat like a whole other bowl of rice pudding. Exactly. I'm not going to go all the way back in the other room because that rice pudding is half done. And correct me if I'm wrong, but replicators (laughs) just replicate the recipes that that you have. Right. 
So, like, how could how could the recipe, how could the Yudanian spice pudding from every replicator he saw on Earth, how different could they be? Okay, here's the thing. Originally, when I brought this up, or when we brought this up, or when you brought it up and we were talking about it, I thought we were just making fun. Yeah, no, this is important to me. Well, no, okay, but it's actually it actually does speak. I don't know where Cisco is, where Commander Cisco is, on whether or not Deep Space Nine is home. But the mm. fact that this thing that is exactly the same, that is literally exactly the same everywhere else, yeah, does not taste as good as it does when he is quote home end yeah. quote. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't speak to Commander Cisco, but Jake Cisco is home. Yeah. That's an interesting, yeah. that's, it's, it's an incredibly subtle, that's an incredibly subtle um, way to say that and in a way that's different from everybody else. Like, I'll, I'll hang my stuff up here. I mean, somebody moves me to a cubicle, you know, the last time mm-hmm. I had a desk job, which was way too long ago now. <laughs> somebody moves me to a cubicle. The first thing I do is put up my picture of J.R. Bob Dobbs. I, mm-hmm. I, it's just what happens. It's the first mm-hmm. thing that happens if I get it, you know, when they say, yes, here are four thumbtacks, bam, that goes up right there. Yeah. And that's my work home, even if it's not home. That's an interesting, uh, interesting thing between them. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about Kira's willful disregard for her host's insistence that she not message from the planet surface? <laughs> but that it took two seconds yeah. Yeah. For, for her to be told that. And then for her to go, okay, this is what I'm going to go do now. Yeah, and by the way, way yeah. to put your friend in, like, a really difficult position, right? Hey, mm-hmm. listen, I know this mm-hmm. is your family. I know these are your people. I know you heard them ask me not to do this thing, but I'm going to do this thing. Keep it between you and me, okay? Mm-hmm. And then Oda's like, well, as long as it's secret. Yeah, that's fine. You know, <laughs> yeah. Secret's my middle, well, it might be my middle. Do I have a last name? God, I have so many questions. <laughs> Um, I know she thinks she has a safe way to do it, and I know it advances the plot, and I know the founders are the bad guys now, but at that point in the show, all she knew was that somebody had told her no, seemingly with good reason, and eh, no reason's going to be good enough for her. Yeah, I, I almost would have liked, and you could have done it in a few seconds, I almost would have liked uh, a line of resistance from the changeling, and then for Odo to say, no, no, no. This is my friend. What she's doing is safe. This will work. Trust me on this. Like, build something there. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it is just so... They just throw it away. They throw away the moment that uh, Kira's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. And Oda's like, yeah, that's what you do. Yeah. It reminded me a bit of Paradise, honestly, in that they knew that there was no way to communicate with the outer world, but they were being lied to about that. If um, mm-hmm. if Elixa, or Elixis, excuse me, if Elixis had said yeah. to them... Uh, no, don't. I think that them would have had to question and wonder why. And even if you get a good reason at that point, um, uh, there could be some back and forth. There could be some discussion because uh, because yeah. Alexis and her people were not being hunted to extinction, which right. is what's happening with the founders. And I mean, right. what has happened with the founders in the past anyway? Before we knew they were the founders, is what happened with changelings. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, just for her to completely disregard that. I mean, without I mean, as you say, just that little conversation would have been fantastic. Or a, you know, or maybe they could have, they wouldn't have wanted to redo what they did on Paradise, but they could have said, no, it's, it's the nebula, you know, they could have said it was any number of things. And then she finds out, no, it's not that. Because at this yeah. point, there's just no justification for her just saying, well, that's cute, but will you excuse me? Except she doesn't even say, will you excuse me? She just says, oh, okay. With her fingers crossed behind her back, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> What do you call a holodeck episode without the holodeck? You call it The Search. Well, what do you say, John? Do you want to uh, you want to sum up The Search Part 1? Would you rather sum up The Search Part 2? Or do you want to do them both as, like, you know, one big search? Oh, one, just the biggest search. All right. Let's do that yeah. then. Because yeah, this is the yeah. part of the show where we talk about all the stuff that we watch, talk about all the stuff that they were saying, and then figure out whether the episode uh, stands the test of time. Um, the searches, John. <laughs> hey, something we didn't mention, by the way, really quickly. This is actually the start of season three. Yeah, and that's what I think is so interesting about it, is that it kind of feels like a pilot. It, at least part one does. 
Um, it, it feels like, well, we have to reintroduce the gang. We have to give everybody justification for being there and what they do, what their positions are, what their roles are. Um, but at the same time, they're kind of ratcheting up the stakes on DS9, change the location. Um, and, and then just as a story, uh, you get that Twilight Zone twist for the second episode mm -hmm. for, for part two. So the the tone and the action are very different in both, which I think is a good thing. I think it, it uh, helps these two episodes. And really your focus in part two is what's going on with Odo. I have to admit that as soon in part two, from the first time I watched this, as soon as I got back to Deep Space Nine and we met Admiral Necheyev, and, uh, and it just seems like things were going a little too fast to sign the treaty, I, I knew something was off and I didn't know what it was and I wasn't expecting mind control or, or whatever at that point, mm. but I knew that something was wrong and that was not actually the story. Honestly, I uh, thought that O'Brien and um, Dax, when, mm -hmm. when they saved Cisco and, and, uh, and Bashir, I thought they were changelings. Dax was, oh, Dax, oh, Dax yeah. was very smiley. She was very mm -hmm. smiley and she was very happy about whatever it was that uh, what Cisco was going to see. So I think I can't remember if she actually said, I think you're going to like it or something like that. But it was just all yeah. like, oh, that's 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 weird. Except yeah. I thought they were changelings. <laughs> like, I didn't think they were uh, I didn't think they were, you know, living in each other's minds. Yeah. yeah. I got to say one thing that's bothering me is the continued sort of uh, disdain for Starfleet. It sort of felt like every time anybody said Starfleet, they sneered. Mm -hmm. In this mm -hmm. episode. And that's kind of, okay, so that's how season three is going to go. See also season two, I suppose. I got I to gotta hold up one thing, though, that I love. And it, it, yeah, the interplay between the, the founders and the Vorta and the Jem'Hadar is interesting. I mean, because it's one bad guy. It's the Dominion. But it's got mm -hmm. these, like, all these tentacles. That's going to be an interesting thing to, to find. Um, my favorite show, though, and I know I said earlier, I kind of hope we can figure out exactly what kind of character Quark is. I think on a show full of fantastic actors, Armin Shimmerman may be the best. Mm. And I don't know. I mean, it, wow. it, was just, it was just it was a very small thing. It was when uh, he was like, hey, by, by the way, I'm going to stay here with the Karama or Karama or whichever it is and, you know, and, and find my own way back. Um, uh, Cisco says, good luck. And all he says is, uh, good luck to you, commander. I think is all the line is. Yeah. I don't know what kind of direction he was given. I don't know. I mean, the reason that I find my feelings about Quark so hard to pin down, I think is because of Armin Shimmerman, because mm -hmm. when he has those moments, he he is uh, he, I, he's uh, human is not the right word obviously because he's Ferengi but I mean there's 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 something there's something real about his emotion even when he is delivering a throwaway line I, I'm just I'm I'm impressed by him tremendously yeah. and I look forward to uh, I look forward to and the only problem is when you get like a quark episode then a lot of times it's just like Pratt falls and you know a, a little too over the top comedy. Yeah, but he's like he's the part of the show that I look forward to most at this point, which is uh, not something mm -hmm. I would have expected to say. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think everybody in this cast is really great. They're yes. really strong, but it seems like they're giving the most variety to Quark because he he he's the one who gets to have the most fun, mm -hmm. um, and he's the one who who gets to kind of insert himself into situations that may not be his like everybody else has such a defined role oh you're the security person you do this you're the engineer you do this um but quark gets to sort of come and go and because he has the bar he has the most interesting characters come to him as well um but i i also agree that if you overplay it with the ferengi then they stop being sort of the spice that makes the show interesting mm -hmm. um the more you layer it on and <laughs> i think you you said it back when we first met uh, the grand nagus it's like you don't have wally sean come on and then have wally sean do a voice <laughs> because it, it's come on he's already interesting enough he's already quirky and good enough that it just feels like you're you're forcing it when you make him do something else yeah 
as far as um, as far as things that we can take away from this uh, episode, sir? Well, you know, we, we say this so often about Deep Space Nine that it's not a uh, a hit you over the head with a message, a, a save the whales, a you see Timmy moment. But I think there are some big themes and big ideas here. And uh, the thing that we hit on in our discussion in the last segment uh, really came down to the founders. It, it's this difficult thing to grapple with that they have going on where uh, the the female changeling says to Quark, uh, I'm sorry, says to Odo, uh, what you can control can't hurt you. And, you know, the founders and then by extension, the entire dominion operate out of fear. Like I said, that, that that fear pushed them to amass power. And this is a common historical thread. And I wish I knew, you know, what is the way to break that common bit of history repeating itself? And at the same time, do we understand it? Because it's understandable. You know, take somebody or a group of people who have been oppressed and put down and beaten and killed. And as soon as they get a foothold to overcome at least those oppressors, do they always have the the risk of becoming what oppressed them or becoming worse uh, in, in some cases? Well, I think they're going to wrap up the uh, the founder thing in the next episode or the next three. So, so oh, really, we oh, should, good. Oh, so then we're done. Yeah, we move yeah, we, on. We should oh, have okay, an answer cool. pretty soon. No, we don't have an answer yeah. yet, but we should have okay. an answer. I think. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Star Trek is going to solve it all for us. <laughs> nice. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer is Rod Roddenberry. You can find us at the Roddenberry Podcast Network, podcast.roddenberry.com, along with a host of other great shows. There's Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, and check out your daily Star Trek news. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, and check this out, John. It could be good, it could be bad. We'll find out. The House of Quark. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. The Great Link. Sounds like a golf bar. Or a breakfast sausage. Am I right? And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.